0: Excavation Profits Podcast by Excavation Marketing Pros. Interviews with successful excavation and septic business owners revealing how they market and grow their business in today's economy. Hear directly from the most successful leaders in your business and discover what they're doing to keep their phone ringing, equipment running, and businesses booming. Now your host, Scott Andreessen. All right, so I'm here with Reese Alley from SCA Construction out of Georgia. I think we ought to go ahead and get the ball rolling. What do you say, Reese? Yeah, go for it. Okay, cool. So tell us um, a little bit about yourself, your background, kind of how you got into the business. Yeah, well, I started when I was about 15
1: and not, you know, it, it didn't go from, cutting grass all the way up to, you know, the, what we do now, like building dams, culverts and the larger scale of things. But as I think every uh, boy has a dream to get a truck one day, it started out as I just, it wasn't in the cards to have one bought for me or given to me. And so I did have to earn enough money to buy one. And so it ended up being when I was 15, I started putting out ads and going around the neighborhood and this and the other door knocking and, and trying to, you know, drum up work. And then I had a buddy who had a truck. He was uh, 16, a year older than me, had his license. And we would just split profits of I'd find the work and then he would drive us there and we'd both do it and split the money. And that's kind of how it ended up starting. And and that fizzled out right after I got my license. But that was kind of how it all began. It just, I tried to get a job at two places at Chick-fil-A and Publix. And when I was 14 and that, that obviously didn't work. And so there was only one other option that was to work for yourself and that's where we got on the road.
0: That's all. Awesome. So you actually went door knocking with flyers. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Learning rejection at an early age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to print out business cards
1: on, you know, just printer paper and then cutting them up and so that's that's okay, where it cool. got started.
0: Come a long way. So what's interesting is you are in stormwater construction, which is a niche yep. of yes. excavation of the dirt business in general. Can you uh, kind of unpack how you got involved in that, how you went from, I would say, a broad generalist excavation style dirt business, and then you you really niched down into this stormwater construction, how how that worked?
1: Yeah, so it, it didn't, again, nothing happens overnight, but in the beginning it went from landscape, and then I sold the maintenance accounts I had in high school to a buddy of mine. And then I got into more install, which is like just landscape, hardscape retaining walls. And then that eventually turned into just doing drainage. And so I figured that most of the time if you're selling opinions in residential, obviously there's a lot of sales uh, tactics that you can leverage with opinionated work like doing hardscapes or um, more artistic designs, but all the stuff that's really just kind of just dirty that nobody really cares about that they have to get done anyways like drainage, like maybe grading or something like that, where there's not as much of an opinion put on the final product. It's just whether it works or not. That was a lot easier to sell and a lot easier to duplicate. And more importantly, being really honest, the guys I had at the time were, nobody knew what they were doing. I really didn't know what I was doing. And so it was really, really hard to go around and start doing projects where you're trying to reinvent yourself and try something new on every single job. It's just really hard to make any money doing that. And so doing something over and over and over and over, that was very simple. That was residential drainage, like four inch and six inch PVC pipe and stuff like that. It was just really easy. It was predictable. You're going to run into the same stuff every time. And that's kind of where it started. But a a really important point, I did model after a mentor that I had uh, where he had um, a larger business, actually SCA Construction over the course of time where he was always between that 800,000 and you know 1.2 1.4 million dollar range and so as I was coming up in business I kind of watched him and and he kind of gave me a couple pointers about hey you know this is a good machine to buy or this is what maybe I charge for pipe and installation all that kind of thing and so that's kind of where it started and then
0: uh, it will we'll get you know too far down the story but that's where it all yeah. got started can you kind of unpack what The business looks like now, like, yeah, what's the size of the operation, how much equipment, kind of that kind of stuff.
1: So right now we're sitting at about 24 employees, if you include myself. And so that's made up of about 16 to 18 field guys. And then with that, there's about five management staff, if you include myself. And so that's like, uh, you know, I'm our CEO is my title, but obviously it's whatever needs to be done. And then my partner is the chief of operations. And so when we originally kind of joined forces and there's you know, a lot of details in that story, but I started doing more of the, um, I would say technical and sales side of things. And then all of the things that he really wasn't super apt at, um, I was, and likewise, you know, with him having a lot of experience and relationships in the industry, It was just a really, really fertile ground to pair those two skill sets. And so that's where I think the multiplication came from, where I couldn't have necessarily done that on my own as nobody does anything big on their own. But when we combine forces there, that's when it really, really uh, started to take off. And... But to go back to the size of the business, like I said, we're, we're sitting around that you know low to mid 20s range, depending on the week we do cycle. I don't want to say we cycle through a lot of people, but as we have been kind of tearing apart the team and then hiring back some really, really, really good players, that's just come with a churn rate that's, that's normal to find those kinds of people. And so mm-hmm. um, that's kind of what the people looks like. And then on the equipment side of things, we do have a lot of in-house equipment. We do rent a lot as well. But of the equipment we own, we've got about six excavators, ranging from a six thousand pound. Uh, we're big Takeuchi fans. A TB uh, two sixteen, which is like a six thousand pound excavator, and then we own all the way up to a two ninety, which is a twenty thousand pound excavator. And then um, the rest are just uh, we have a handful of eight thousand pound ones. We have a handful of uh, you know fourteen thousand pound ones, and so and, and that, that's kind of what that looks like. And then skids, we've got four skid steers two TL-12s, two TL-10s. And then but one of the TL-10s is out of commission. And then as far as trucks go, we've got, I th- we got another one last week. I think we're sitting at like 14, 15 trucks, but either way, those trucks have really cycled recently into being a newer fleet. Uh, we are a big fan of leasing at this point now. And so we've got, I believe, three, um, three brand new F-450s. And then we've got a 350. We've got, Two five fifties, and or maybe three, five, two new five fifties, one older five fifty, and then we've got about four F one fifties, and then two more F one fifties. If you include my partner and I's. and so, um, and I'm I'm probably missing a handful there. It does it does go in and out quite a lot. We've been selling and changing things around a lot, um, and then as far as rental goes, we do have a, a couple forty five thousand pound machines that we have been either renting or had a subcontractor have. We had a Hitachi. Um, it was a Hitachi 250 that we had for about the last seven months. We just gave it back after a job finished, but it's a mix. I think it's a healthy mix, but it's it's where we're at currently. Some's finance, some's cash. It's you know, it's somewhere in the middle.
0: Got it. Are you comfortable talking about finances? What the company finances look like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So right now we're running between. I would say 350 and $400,000 a month. I mean, some months that, you know, dips down to receivables to sometimes in the 200s. And then there are some months throughout the year where it's going to surge to about the 500s. It just depends on when those draw schedules on the big jobs. Sometimes, you know, you have one draw that's a little bit pushed out and then that's combined with a bunch of either deposits or finish checks. And sometimes it lumps all into one month. And so, but to average it out, uh, we're running it around that pace. But as far as cash on hand and stuff like that, we haven't we haven't had a huge surplus this year. We've done so much growth. We bought we've invested a lot into the company. And so our account balance, I mean, we'll, we'll run anywhere between um, it, it'll do it'll dip low sometimes. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's big and small. They have the same problems. But on the low side, we'll dip down. I mean, somewhere around 50 and then it'll surge to the 300s. And then we'll typically just keep investing in the company once it gets past that range. Um, but we also do have a line of credit and things like that, just to help in cash pinches and, and things like that.
0: Nice. So. Um, guys, uh, by the way, I want to give a shout out to Bethany. And if you have questions, we're monitoring Facebook group. We're monitoring YouTube live. So feel free to put in some questions. If you're on Zoom, just type in the Q&A, a question, and uh, we can get to you that way, too. Now, Reese, I talked to a lot of dirt business owners. Yeah. The whole spectrum of those starting out. And, you know, they it's hard for some to imagine doing four hundred dollars to $500,000 per month. Um, and that sounds great and sunny and bright. But, like, there's definitely been some dark moments <laughs> leading up to that point. Can yeah. you share with us... Some of the darkest moments you've had in business and how you overcame them. I think that would be helpful for the people listening. Yeah. So the
1: darkest moment I had, and and there's there's those kinds of moments a lot. There's just a lot of risk that goes with those kinds of numbers, especially on larger projects. Like this morning, for example, it's it's pouring down rain and we're doing a huge concrete pour on a 18 foot tall, 120 foot long retaining wall right now. It's like it's a half million dollar project and it's pouring down rain. And I think they'll be fine. But there's just there's inherent risk when you're in the larger scheme of things, which we're trying to push to smaller jobs. But in terms of the darkest moment that I ever had, that was probably in 2020 where, uh, you know, coming out of high school, I had I was doing about 40,000 hours a month. And then the year after that, when I was 19, I did six hundred and forty thousand hours in sales that year at 642 to be exact. And that was fantastic on the front side of that, but on the back side of that, when I started to scale to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the hundreds per month, which didn't last an enormous amount of time before I had to scale back a little bit, um, I just ran too fast. Up until that point, I had grown really, really well and really steady. Um, I was doubling and tripling, which isn't steady, but I wasn't really losing money. I made my handful of mistakes, but I was still making a lot at the end of the day. And when I chose to move to another shop and just scale everything, I bought, I financed way too much equipment to keep up with that scale. I hired a ton of people that were super green, were super inexperienced. And then I hired a salesman, which was kind of the nail in the coffin where I had done all my sales. And then I kind of hired him and then hired the first person that I found, which is a whole stupid thing in and of itself. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And so he was a salesman, he was in his mid 30s, he was super confident. And then I just, kind of gave him the reins, he did one or two estimates and said he had it and I trusted that which you know is my fault for doing so. Never looked at a single bid that he sent out, never did anything. He said he had it. I was busy with everything else and so kind of out of sight out of mind forgot about it. And then all of a sudden over that 6 month period I lost all of my savings which was about $30 or $40,000 in cash at the time and went about $80,000 into credit card debt. And so it was a yeah. really really horrible moment where your customers start hating you and you don't know why and you're trying to piece it together, but you don't want to fire him because you don't have time to go back into sales. And so it's like this vicious cycle of not making the right decision soon enough and letting that just eat away your entire career. And if you let it, it will. And that's what happened. And so at that winter in the, I guess, so that was the winter going into 2021, finishing 2020. That was Pretty tough to come to grips with. It's the first time that I ever had to, you know, do an ego check and really scale back everything I had, which was giving back some of the equipment that I was trying to buy off lease. That was letting go of a bunch of people, realizing that the uh, salesman that I had had been doing projects under my own name and then screwing over customers. Realizing that I had to fix all of those people and, you know, thinking we had six weeks of work scheduled out in the middle of December and then come to find out. When I actually got into his sales phone and where he had that database, which was, don't ask me why it was in his sales phone, but it was. And we only had like three or four days work because the six weeks had been done by him through another LLC that he opened outside of my business using my name. And it was was a train wreck on fire heading off a cliff. It was really, really bad. And so that was the worst. We got out of it for sure, but it, it took a
0: long time. Wow. Yeah, that's tough. We have a question from Bethany. <clears throat> She's asking, how do you obtain a lot of your business and what do you recommend to get more business? That's a really pertinent question at the type of business you have.
1: I think we that was one of the questions we were going to go over in a little while. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, I was all B to C, so just you know, business to customer, which is like residential kind of jobs. And if that's the kind of, I did a lot of pay-per-click advertising. I did a lot of free advertising as well, just as much as I could. And I'm a really big proponent of do everything you can for free until you really, really have to pay for something. And so if you are a, you know, a B2C, like you're cutting grass, for example, or doing landscape, I mean, to be honest, it's not really sexy, but door knocking is a fantastic free way to one, loosen your tongue up as a salesman and then get around the community. You can get flyers and and go through. And even though it says no soliciting, that's not really that serious of a law. And so you can just keep going. But if you are trying to do more B2B, which I think B2B, I think you need to master B2C. This is my personal opinion. You have to master how to do B2C before you do B2B, because if you can't do that with a residential customer, businesses are, I don't wanna say they're a lot more complex. But there is rules, there's underwritten rules that aren't on paper that you really, really have to understand. And so if you're going to do B2B, that is a relationship game all day long, 100% of the time. I mean, pay-per-click, I think, is possible if you're going to do this kind of work You know, in the excavation industry and you know physical services. But you really, really have to find those kinds of customers, whether um, they're engineers or property managers or contractors or builders, someone where if you're a roofing guy, who can you find as a roofing guy that's going to buy a roof every single month or multiple times a month? For example, if uh, you're a roofing guy and you do B2C and you get one guy that gets a roof and it's the, ne- the only roof he's going to have in the next 15 years but he might refer you to friends and family and stuff like that. Or if you're doing B2B, you could be a roofer guy that is uh, works for a builder where that builder is building, you know, four finished, finished homes a month and he needs four roofs a month. And then he also knows other builders. And so instead of getting that one referral, now you're getting those four roofs a month. And if you do a good job, then he's going to refer you to another guy that does four roofs a month or 15 roofs a month or 20 roofs a month. And so Mm -hmm. now, you've got five customers that are getting you know that are supporting you know a four million dollar company which obviously it's not that simple but that's the premise of it 100 mm-hmm. percent
0: I I think a, a great takeaway there guys um, is you have to master B to C before moving on to B to B um that makes a lot of sense now and guys if you're asking questions keep in mind there is like a six to seven second delay. So we are seeing it, but it just takes a little time due to the lag. So you can ask questions on YouTube, Facebook. We are monitoring that in Zoom. We have another question. Do you think it's a good idea to sub out until you are more established if you have an excavation company? So yes, and I I don't want to keep saying yes and no,
1: but it's really a situational thing because... I think I have a friend, for example, and this is the guy where we were we shared office space. He had a hardscape business. And uh, when the same time I lost everything I had, he ended up unfortunately going bankrupt. And we both pretty much lost everything and in separate businesses. But he has since come back and he is 100 percent subs. So he's doing 60 to 80 thousand dollars a month right now with no equipment, no trucks. He doesn't own a shovel like it's it's 100 percent. But. He could not have done that if he hadn't done it, you know, the in-house, the nitty gritty, the owning the machines, owning everything and, and doing that first. And so I can't say you can just jump into doing that because he had that knowledge base before he went that on that extreme. But if you are getting started, I think you have to do at least some of yourself, whether you're working with a sub, like if you're getting started and you hire a sub, you need to be on site 100% of the time. The only time you leave is to go get lunch or to get the materials. But especially when you're getting started, it is so easy to lose everything you have on a couple jobs going south. And so, if you are going to use subs, I would just be super, super careful and uh, be on site, monitor everything, make sure you're communicating everything to the customer really well, just overkill communication in every single way. And I think you'll be fine. But we, we still use subs today. I mean, we're a mix. We have, you know, the 23, 24 in-house employees, but we also have a handful of, uh, like, for example, I've got eight people on a uh, job site pouring concrete right now outside of our workforce. And so, you know, so technically we have, with that crew and another sub crew, there's like 30 or 35 people working today. Um, so if you count that, it's a great way to scale up um, and be able to access some of those larger projects. Like, for example, the big retaining wall we do have going in today, um, that's a, a $525,000 project. And the subcontractor on that for the, the retaining wall, which is the helical piers, the wall, um, that's a $256,000 subcontractor. And then everything else we have is basically prep, management, finished work, working with the city and permitting and inspections and all that kind of thing. And so it's always going to be a mix. I, I think mix is a, is a healthy thing. You've got you know GCs who are basically all subs on one end of the spectrum. And then you've got the guy who's only in-house and doesn't trust anybody on the other spectrum. And I think there is a happy medium in between to, um, to get the most bang for your buck as far as your personal time on
0: job sites. Mm-hmm. So what are the differences between B2B and B2C customers for you? And what do you prefer?
1: So we've tried to move away from B2C on a large level. We've started doing a lot more city and municipal work recently. and But before that, it was a lot of uh, property managers. So if you consider like our B2B customers are the property managers, engineers, contractors. We do some work for builders, but the largest majority is engineers, homeowners associations as well, where there's like a board of directors and it's, you know, the pool of money for the neighborhood. But as far as B2C, there is sometimes where we will do a you know, homeowner job where it's a retaining wall. Um, in fact, actually that the, the half manure or wall we have going on right now, uh, that is a B2C that is a customer that is in someone's backyard, believe it or not. And so, um, that's a really extreme example, but we still wow. do sometimes, uh, just from the past referrals we've had, we still do answer those calls and then go back and do a 5,000 hour drainage system or like a 10,000 or 20,000 hour project. And sometimes they get really big like this retaining wall, but, <laughs> the majority of it is B2B. That might be, for example, we just bid $40,000 of detention ponds for the city of Smyrna. and uh, you know that's just a local municipality in our area. Uh, we're getting on vendor lists uh, for the different counties around the area, different cities, just any kind of municipal organization that is always going to have these issues where I talked about, you know, you can get five roofs from one contractor if you're a roofing guy. For detention ponds, which is what really we really love doing and what we have a lot of work doing, um, I can go to a municipality and they have three hundred and sixty detention ponds, and they're all coming up for bid next year. And so, by getting one contact, I accessed three hundred and six the opportunity for three hundred and sixty ponds relative to the one homeowners association that has twenty five houses that has one pond, which is still a great client, and I'll take those all day long, but. It is a little bit more leverageable to go after someone that's got the power to put contracts on 360 than one. And so, but I believe every customer is important. You've got to work your way up to those steps, but that's really who we're trying to chase at this point.
0: Wow. That's good insight. I can imagine like running a Google ad for a $15 click and you get a half a dollars <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's quite a return on investment. It is, it
1: is, it but is. But
0: leveraging the municipalities um, and getting like all the retention ponds and everything—that's that's a really good tip. How do you go about cultivating a relationship with municipalities and stuff like that? So that is not a simple answer. I so
1: <laughs> I have the benefit. Keep in mind when I, I when I originally I sold and I bought SCA Construction or at least twenty five percent of it. And we'll talk more about the long-term agenda of uh, of that strategy later. But the partner I had, you know, while the business wasn't enormous, he did have a lot of relationships long-term. Now, I don't want to say that because you can go apply to be a vendor on almost any municipality. There are a lot of, you know, you have to have the insurance qualifications and the workman's comp, and you have to have all of those, uh, you know, red tape type stuff to even Mm. get in the door. But if you do get in the door, you still got to have a long-term relationship. And so when I was saying earlier, it, it is super important. It is super pertinent that you do a good job every time you're responsive and you don't ever drop the ball because those relationships, especially just, I mean, they're really, really hard to get, but they're really easy to lose. And so there's a lot of customer contractors that will go around and frankly, screwing people over where they'll, you know, not respond or they'll say, well, you know, the attitude of we're done with this job and I'm just going to get out. And even though nobody's happy, you know, I'm never going to see him again. But you can't go around screwing people over your entire career and expect it to go well. And especially on the municipal side, like there's times where you just got to take it in the pants, even if it's not your fault, in the, in the, um, in the seat of equal or greater benefit of making them look good. And so, for example, there are some times where if there is a, you know, municipal worker or property manager or engineer, and they make a mistake, which is very common, but if we call them out on their mistake, like, for example, we're working for a homeowners association and, you know, the homeowners association is the client of the engineer, and then they are also our client. And so technically me and the engineer are separate, but we're doing the engineer's plans. But if we know this engineer has got a whole lot of work and it's going to be a long-term relationship, sometimes it's worth it. that Even though the engineer made a mistake that we just work it out and then maybe we take it and then we just go with it. So that way we don't have to call the engineer out and he looks bad to his client. And then he likes us because we made him look good. And so there's a, there is a little bit of politics to play, I think in that realm, but it's, I, I promise you, it doesn't work out in the long-term and you can't do that always. It gets you in really big trouble, but. You have to play the mix a little bit.
0: That that old adage, pick and choose your battles. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so let's talk about, and by the way, guys, if you have questions, don't be shy. Reese is uh, sharing a lot. As you can see, he's pretty much an open book here. Yep. Type your questions into YouTube Live. Type them in the Facebook group, Zoom, and um, I'm he'll be more than happy to answer them. Let's talk about your long-term goal with the business going into twenty-four, twenty-five. Yeah. So
1: we originally, when I when I bought uh, into SCA Construction, and I you know started helping the company scale and really working with the uh, the former hundred percent owner, I really want to assemble a portfolio of these kinds of companies uh, all across the the Southeast, maybe eventually the country. I think there's a it's the same exact need and it's the same exact uh, issue all around the country. And, you know, I've been talking with people in Florida and Texas and Alabama and the Carolinas that have the exact same business where it's, you know, a million, 1.5 million, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, but they're trying to do drainage work or they're in the same sort of niche, but they don't know how to get those, you know, heavy hitter, powerful long-term customers or how to make any kind of recurring revenue based in the business. And so I think it's a tremendous opportunity. That's where I want to take it long term. With SCA specifically, like I said, uh, it is my hope. Maybe we'll do about $5 million this year. I know we'll at least hit four. I think we're somewhere in the mid twos right now. And the back half of the year is always the, the juiciest. I know it's coming down. And so next year, I think that we'll, I mean, it sounds ambitious, but it's really not. I think we'll hit somewhere around six million uh, next year, maybe maybe more like seven. It it depends, you know, one contract can make that difference. But in the next three years, I think reasonably we can get to around ten million ish. Uh, We had a consultant come out uh, earlier this year in the first quarter, Dr. Rob McClellan. He was the CEO of the John Maxwell Companies for a long time, which if y'all are uh, familiar with him. And we paid a lot of money. We had $50,000 uh, for a three-day session basically to design that roadmap um, and determine a value of execution, what the company's worth at that size, and, and how to get there as far as with the debt we've got now and the current uh, you know profits that we have reported and that are on the books, how to make that a little bit easier to read and more reportable in the future. And so I think the future looks bright. It's not done till it's done, but I feel extremely confident we can get to that size in that time period, and then I'm the, I am the most excited about finding all of those other individuals as well, and whether that's combining them in the SCA family or doing another purchase, and then uh, you know working with those entrepreneurs with the same business to uh, to do the exact same thing that we're doing with SCA. So that's what I'm the most excited about. I think that that's um, that's probably at the very soonest, the end of 2024, but probably somewhere in late 2025.
0: And um, I wouldn't really be surprised by it. Now, when I listen to you talk, within just a few seconds, I can say, okay, this this guy has a knack for business. By the words that come out of his mouth, he understands business. But like you had to learn somewhere. Are you were you, coming up? Are you involved in like business coaching or how how'd that work? How did you yeah. learn?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know anybody that would sit down and talk with me. So uh, my mom is a teacher; she's a fourth grade teacher still to this day. My dad you know, recently just retired, but he was in IT and did, like computer stuff. And so it wasn't ever in the family, but um, they always encouraged me to do things that I wanted. And, and as long as I had enough money to try it, they would let me spend it. And so there wasn't really a lot of um, there wasn't a lot of restraints there, which I'm very thankful for. I had a great childhood, but growing up. I grew up in a well-off area. We were a little bit more leveraged out um, than probably most in the area we lived in, but I, you know, I was able to go to great public schools and have a great childhood. So um, it all worked out, but there was a lot of people that had, you know, all of my friends were the, you know, here's a brand new truck and here's a credit card. And, you know, they had to work for a little bit, but really not that much. And I always wanted to go do the things that I saw everybody, you know, the, the car originally was materialistic, being honest. You know, you got me. I wanted the cars and, you know, helicopters and jets and all that. And that will come. It's, it's a matter of time, in my opinion. However, there's so many other things where, you know, there's there's a neighbor that has cancer or something like that. And all they need is 80 grand to make it through surgery or something like that. Uh, or there's, you know, a family member that is, you know, about to uh, pass away and or they're in hospice or whatever, and they got to go to a a retirement home, or you can pay $6,000 a month for a caretaker to come in and be with them until, you know, the time that they need to go join Jesus again. And so there's stuff like that. And that's not even counting the fact that you can travel the world, you can impact people, you know, you can build a school in Africa for, you know, you can build a really awesome school for like half a million bucks in, in some foreign country. And so I just think, um, I think it has been a big calling to experience that, and so growing up, I always wanted to do that. And I didn't—I don't know where to go. I didn't go to college personally. I spent a heck of a lot of money on education, but most of it was just calling on other entrepreneurs that I could find. You know, reaching out a local church, and if you had a landscape business, I'd ask to sit down for coffee and ask you questions, and mm-hmm. just anybody that I could get a hold of. And then now I've started to have to pay for a lot of those uh, interactions. But, um, for a long time, you know, it was just, uh, it was whatever I could get. Right. And so there was landscapers, it was contractors. It was, um, you know, I've, I've been chasing a guy that, uh, I, I can't call him like a close friend yet, but he owns a $200 million excavation company. I've been calling the dude for like eight months, met him once in person. And so it's just stuff like that where it's always chasing the next level. And outside of that, just books, audios, podcasts, anything I could get a hold of, but, That's where it pretty much all came from. And I think a lot of mistakes. uh, I don't know everything. You know, I feel like the more I know, the more that I know that I don't know. So that uh, little phrase is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty pertinent. So there's always a good to
0: learn. That's a good couple of good tips though. Like you saw other successful people in the business, you reached out offer to buy them coffee or lunch. Um, The other guy who's very successful, $200 million excavation company. So you're going after the right people. Um, I get it. That makes total sense. How can people get in touch with you um, if they want more information uh, or help in any way?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I do have a handful of medias just on Facebook and um, Instagram and YouTube, and I haven't been extremely active, but um, there will be a huge uptick in activity on those. I'm trying to release a handful of helpful videos and stuff like that of just how to navigate some of those challenges. And so just from my personal experience, but I would just try and DM me or reach out on there for the, uh, for the best way to do it.
0: So. Awesome. Okay. Well, well, uh, if anyone has any last-minute questions here, now's the time to ask them. And there is like a six-seven second delay, but I will check on Facebook and YouTube real fast. Any good books, by the way, that you would recommend, Reese?
1: Uh. Yeah, actually. Um, I mean, the basics, anything Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich, um, you know, how to win friends and influence people, you know, the basic kind of stuff. Um, I I have been a fan of reading textbooks recently just to understand the finance side of things more. You know, if you do want to know uh, anything about, you know, a college education and you don't want to go pay $40,000 for a degree, you can buy the textbooks and get the same education on your own if you want to. And so I think that's been pretty cool to, to go through and, you know, kind of read some of the finance books and uh, as well as business books, you know, without having to go back to school. But as far as the personality stuff, I think that's a really big foundation. Um, you know, the origin of all of the you know, leadership books is the Bible. So can't hurt there, but, but yeah, just look around, poke around,
0: skim it. It looks good, read it. So it just depends on what you need at the time. Awesome. We have one more question. Someone's unclear of whether they look for your company name on Facebook or your personal name, Reese Alley.
1: Um, go, go on Instagram and then uh, look up Real Reese
0: Alley. It's more of a personal page, but that's the only handle I know off the top of my head. So just being honest. Okay. Awesome. All right. Reese, thank you so much. Tremendous amount of value on this call. Um, this was a lot of fun and you gave some great insight, so I appreciate it. And, uh, I, with that, I guess we can go ahead and bring it to a close. All right, man. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. Hey Thank there, you so much. Bye guys. Pros. Thanks for joining. If you enjoyed have a great today's podcast, make sure to like, and subscribe to our podcast and channel. Leave us your feedback and let us know how we did. And Hey. If you're interested in taking your excavation or septic business to the next level online, make sure you visit excavationmarketingpros.com today and take advantage of our free resources and mastermind group for excavation and septic industry professionals.